Welcome back. We are 90 episodes into the Brew Theology podcast. And on behalf of Brew Theology, I would like to thank you. Janelle and I appreciate your support. Those who listen, those who give on Patreon. And uh, this has been a blast. So we're going to keep doing this. And this episode is brought to you by our friends out in New Jersey. I call them the Jersey Boys. Jersey Brew Theology had Dr. Catherine Keller out of Drew Seminary. Uh, at the pub so you get to listen to a little conversation that Nate Dog and those guys had with her hope you enjoy it if you like it like we always say please give it a share online that's how we get more listeners and support so do that we're at Brew Theology on Instagram and on Facebook Brew underscore Theology on Twitter hope you had a great 4th of July a great mid-July we're at the Wild Goose Festival right now I'm loving life it is good and we will talk to you soon peace Um, I'm going to go ahead and round us up. Um, we have a special guest tonight. Um, I'm really, really excited uh, to introduce everyone to Dr. Catherine Keller. She's a professor at uh, Drew University Graduate School. And um, she'll be talking tonight um, about her book on the mystery. And I'm going to actually pass it over to Luke, who will be... Uh, kind of guiding the start of the conversation. So our format tonight is um, Luke will ask her a few questions um, about the book. Um, we'll give her the floor for a while. And then as the evening is progressing, um, if you have any questions, feel free to ask. Um, and there's there's no need to, uh, to stand up and walk up to one of the mics. You can just ask from where you are. <laughs> this is good. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, all right. Am I in the shot? <laughs> it, doesn't matter, it doesn't matter if I'm in the shot. Um, so, Dr. Keller, thank you for joining us tonight. Um, first... Okay, now I'm really glad to be here. <laughs> um, so we're talking tonight about your book on the mystery. Um, this book is... Uh, it's a little different from your other work. It's it's kind of um, it's more accessible to maybe a general audience. And uh, can you talk about what what prompted you to to write this book? Yes, and I'm really excited to talk about it and whatever you all want to talk about in the context of this kind of of adventurous, freewheeling theological conversation. I'm already feeling, you know, pumped, like there's <laughs> hope for the future in a discipline which in some districts of the universe is seeming a little more abundant, uh, but not here. And not a true. Uh, so I had written some fairly um, dense books, not because that's just how I think, but because I think that when I came into my own theologically in the 80s, uh, I was very focused on doing feminist theology. There wasn't so very much of that yet. There weren't so many women's voices even in theology, theology proper. Uh, and so that was an exciting challenge to me. And I became aware that the work that was out there was largely very accessible because in feminist theology, like the works of Rosemary Ruther, Mary Daly, Letty Russell, really written uh, 
not in a condescending way and not in a simplistic way, but written to be able to engage uh, a fairly wide readership. And I thought that was great. But what I was encountering when I was teaching these texts with graduate students was like the feminist, I, we know all that already. So I think that I just felt, okay, there's a need to go deeper. And, and I, I felt uh, that I could do that because of having some philosophical uh, background from from early on, and uh, that that was satisfying. So I wrote books that wandered in different patterns. I won't try to summarize all of that, but um, I think the the key theme is that there's a, a a radically relational point of view in play. That doesn't mean that relationships are seen as nice or good necessarily. They can be evil, and that's why they really hurt because. Uh, bad relations get inside of us too, even the toxicity pumping out from D.C. I mean, that's all part of the relational web. So that first book was from a broken web. But then I wanted to work more in, in, in explicitly theological symbol zones. And um, first book was, uh, was Apocalypse Now and Then, the, the first book after the first book. And Apocalypse Now and Then was stimulated somewhat by the the fear I felt uh, about the possibility of a of a nuclear exchange, a nuclear holocaust, as we went into the the Reagan period and the build up from the religious right with its heavy apocalypticism uh, was something I was picking up and registering in my dreams, and I saw that there aren't any theologians writing about this. There aren't any theologians writing about the apocalypse, period. The only one was Jürgen Moltmann, you know, in a very different context in Europe. Uh, and other than that, it was just, you know, liberal and progressive theology just saw that as the, the, the you know, the, like that's the text of, of fundamentalists. Uh, and it certainly is at least that. Um, so I got deep into it. And it's on my mind again because the book that I'm going to write now, <laughs> after I get the page proofs done for the book I'm finishing uh, Sunday, is, uh, is Apocalypse After All, question mark. So there's a bit of a full circle for me. Uh, but now the book is less motivated. Uh, by the fear of nuclear exchange um, and fundamentalism and, and really more by what's happening politically in, in relation to uh, climate change. So there's so much going on politically uh, that we have to respond to around race and around immigration and around <laughs> toxic masculinity, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that, uh, that even folk who are not at all, uh, climate deniers end up not being able to put attention there, and yet, as you well know, all the all the very modest uh, environmental uh, protections and shifts towards greenness and sustainability that had been made in this country are, are just being gutted on a daily basis. So, uh, I was going to write this book before the election. Uh, I already was deeply worried about climate change. <laughs> Uh, now I'm more deeply worried. <coughs> um, but I'm writing it precisely not to announce the end of the world, uh, but to go on with a certain faithful reading of 
of the book of Revelation and of its tradition uh, that makes clear, first of all, that in the Bible and in the book of Revelation, there is no end of the world. It doesn't happen. There are catastrophes that are described in, in visionary, hallucinogenic, traumatic, poetic forms. Uh, there is no the end of the world. Um, and it's always new beginning in very worldly terms, not just in heaven or something. But so that's what I'm about to write. Um, so that's a kind of loop in to say, so I've been preoccupied with how to interpret end things and kind of deconstructing the end uh, all along. And, and then the next book was deconstructing the notion of a pure origin. So getting into the things of creation, I wrote Face of the Deep. Um, and so it goes, but these, these have, those two were texts that went deep into, you know, the face of the deep, that's the second verse of Genesis, uh, or deep in, into uh, the apocalypse and accompanying histories, uh, doctrinal developments, philosophical engagements. But I felt a need to just to, you know, get a, get a, get a wider sweep of theology as opposed to in-depth preoccupation with deconstructing absolute beginnings and absolute endings uh, and doing it you know, in rather biblical terms, I think, in each case, uh, though I'm not a biblical scholar. Uh, but I needed, I needed a more systematic sort of scope of theology, uh, and I needed to do that in the constructive theological terms that, that I found myself practicing for very long. But I didn't want to, you know, pretend to be a female mini Karl Barth and do the church dogmatics, you know, volume after volume. Uh, now, I, I wanted something, uh, you know, that was contractable and that, that I could hold in my mind, and I realized, well, that's kind of what I do when I teach systematic theology as an introductory course every year. So that so this book comes out of that. So in a way, it's it's sharing that teaching experience where I select a number of key doctrines and take students uh, through uh, through that series uh, from a, a quite contemporary point of view, but hopefully with real engagement of of key histories. So I was putting it together. I thought, well, this could be then a teaching tool. Uh, for others, a learning uh, tool, since it comes out of, of, of a medium of teaching that I have loved and gotten pretty okay at. Uh, took some learning to reach that. That's a, those classes are classes in which I always have you know, a, lot, a, a great diversity of students, uh, many often from Korea, some very progressive, some very evangelical. I have many African-American students, you know, many from Pentecostal uh, or Baptist backgrounds, some of them Episcopalian and UMC. I mean, it's just a, a great diversity in the classroom, and they're just often fresh at Drew, so they go through a lot of shock with me, and I, <laughs> I'm, I'm able to reassure them that we're going to get through it, and we do, and it's exciting. So it's, it's some, of, some of that work that I, that I tried to wrap into this text, but... But first of all, just to, to get a doctrinal flow together for myself in a way that I hadn't because I, I was so suspicious of anything 
that called itself systematic theology, constructive theology I could work with. Um, but, you know, a lot of my suspicions were very useful in the last millennium, but it's been good to outgrow some of them and uh, experiment more broadly, and this is, this is part of that, just feeling more at home and in a, in a tradition very, very broadly conceived and trusting how much the tradition itself is, is growing and has been capable of growth. Um, so that's why I wrote it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and everything else. <laughs> I think maybe you're so relationally connected to everything that the whole history of the cosmos is why you wrote this. <laughs> <laughs> I was just returning as I, I'm having to fuss uh, with the copy-edited version and missing little bits of footnotes in this political theology of the earth I've, I've finished. But it took me back today to... A passage in, in, in Walter Benjamin, is that a name anyone's heard? A, a really interesting, arcane thinker uh, who uh, <coughs> died in, I think it was 1940, trying to, uh, trying to get away from the Nazis at the French-Spanish border. Decided he wasn't going to escape, it wasn't working, so he killed himself. But I was just reading one of the last paragraphs he wrote before that, that moment, um, yeah, I mean, he was known as Jewish, and so he, he, he didn't have a chance. He had gone to France, but now the Nazis had followed him. Uh, but, but he was just, just writing in this passage that I was checking up on, because I saw that I'd misquoted somehow. Uh, he, he talks about, about the, the uh, ungeheure ab the monstrous abbreviation that every moment is. It's a monstrous abbreviation of the whole history of the human race, which is itself an abbreviation of a much vaster history of the universe. So he is conveying that's all there, and that's why every moment, every moment uh, is, is the narrow gate through which the, the Messiah might come. <laughs> so yes, the summering, summer, summing up of the universe is what we do in theology, isn't it? <laughs> but I thought, you know, we want to get in particularly to yes. some of the okay. texts, and you so, had a good point to make. Sure. Uh, could you talk a little bit about um, here and in uh, Face of the Deep, how you, how you deal with the doctrine of creation? Yeah. Uh, very lovingly. Uh, but so, how many of you had read? Ne never mind. I'm not asking if you read the book, but you maybe read. How many of you might have read the chapter on creation? Maybe that was chapter three. Was it? Thank you. Okay, good to know. Uh, I won't. Too, I won't be too worried about. People who read it are closer to you. <laughs> Good. And you'll all get you'll all get closer to me the more you read the book. But I won't worry too much about boring you with repetition. Then, um, so the reason I wrote a book on basically the second verse of Genesis, uh, on the on which is then an important part of this in a more contracted and and accessible form, you know that that second verse being that the the earth was tohu vabohu, 
uh, and, you know, this is chaotic, and darkness was upon the face of the Tehom, and the spirit of God was was actually vibrating, fluctuating, pulsing over the face of the Mayim, you see. So that verse, I, you know, I was always kind of puzzled by that. Like, where's the nothing in there? And people would say, oh, you translate, you know, Tovabohu's nothing, you know, the earth was empty and void. Well, there's no word in Hebrew that means void. It doesn't exist. There is no void in Hebrew. Uh, and tohu vabohu, uh, actually bohu almost means nothing at all. It's like there for the poetry because it rhymes with tohu. It's a phrase that comes up occasionally. Tohu means means does mean waste like a desert, sort of uninhabitable, and, and a little chaotic is the indication. A kind, so a sense of wilderness. It's it's the, the tohu is referred to as a wilderness condition. There's no nothing. I got really interested in this and realized uh, there's, there's no creation from nothing in the Bible anywhere. And biblical scholars have known this for about 100 years, but it makes them very uncomfortable. Like, I actually had a little time studying well before I got interested in this question in, in um, Germany, Heidelberg, because I was a hippie and I dropped out of a really good school where I had a full scholarship and went to Germany. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> so I don't have... A BA, but uh, but don't tell anyone. But um, <laughs> but I did some studying there, and, and I got to study with Vesterman a little bit, you know, who's the old Old Testament scholar, very old at that time. Um, and he, he he writes about yes, it's true you can't find anything like what is meant theologically by the creatio ex nihilo, the creation from nothing anywhere in in the first or second testament. But he says, I nonetheless believe in the creation from nothing uh, as a matter of Christian faith. <laughs> and I thought that was so tragic for him to be in contradiction to, to you know, the, the first couple of verses of, of the book he spends his life on uh, because of some doctrinal understanding that he's committed to. But I encountered, anyway, so I was interested in all this double talk around the creation from absolutely nothing. And... And, of course, drawn then to the, uh, what that means. Why did, why did, within 300 years, why did that notion get so established And uh, in, in Christianity? It's not there for a while. It's creation from the chaos. It's creation from a kind of formless flux, a kind of sheer potentiality. But that suggests that there's not this sort of solipsistic God, uh, you know, alone for all eternity, and then from nothing creates, a, you know, <laughs> why? Um, and what would it be to be alone? All, it would, why? So this suggests already that there's always some kind of something. And Augustine got this early. It's in the Confessions. The three last chapters of the Confessions meditate on this. He sees the problem. Uh, and the ex nihilo isn't quite total doctrine yet. Um, and he, he says it's, a, some, it's, it's, not a, it's not a world yet. It's not things. And it's not a pure nothing either. It's a something nothing. A something nothing. Yeah. But there are, for me, there are all kinds of 
existential and gendered and and political and ecological meanings for this once we once we understand that there is a kind of continuous interactive creation uh, and it's not an omnipotent zap uh, into nothing uh, and that it's a it's something else it's this it's God calling forth God calling forth out of the potentiality and being surprised and saying ooh that's that's good ooh that's good and then assigning uh, more complex tasks like to the earth and, and to the waters to the earth again and and the earth brings forth waters bring forth ooh <laughs> uh, so I just started needing to write a whole book about it. I had been intending at that point to do more of a systematic theology, but I just had to write that. I got involved in chaos theory to help understand the, the meaning of the creation from chaos and then complexity theory that develops out of it and realize it's just a much more ecologically rich reading of scripture that comes when one gets away from the, the ex nihilo doctrine. So that's done here and it it's done in a more gracious way in this book. In Face of the Deep, you know, I really do take on a lot of heavies of the tradition. Oh, starting with Tertullian, <laughs> Irenaeus, <laughs> Athanasius, the later Augustine, Karl Barth. Uh, but it, but it, but it's a, there's a lot of constructive work in that book too. But it, yeah. Great. Um. Before I ha ask the next question, I have a preliminary question. Mm -hmm. Is it Charles Hart's horn or Hartshorn? <laughs> Either work. I say Hartshorn, and I think that's what he says. Okay. As opposed to Hartshorn. <laughs> okay. Well, he wrote a book called, I believe, Omnip Divine Omnipotence and Other Theological Mistakes. So my question now is, why is divine omnipotence a theological mistake? If you read my chapter three and on that story, it'll come absolutely clear to you. And I do agree with Charles Hartshorn. You know, I, I went to Claremont to study with John Cobb, very young and for very strong reasons, and uh, that's process theology. And Hartshorn had been his teacher, and Hartshorn had been the teaching assistant of Alfred North Whitehead, who's the the tutelary genius, the, the mathematical cosmologist who converted and became a philosopher in his 60s and wrote Process and Reality. So that's the school of theology that I got trained in and that I still feel very involved in. And Hartshorn uh, lived uh, into, what, into, into his second century. Could you just give us a clue? Um, I mean, some people already know, but I'm not sure what you mean by uh, process theology mm -hmm. as opposed to non-process theology. Yeah. Well, from a process point of view, that's a good way of putting the question, because we think all theologies are in process. They just sometimes don't recognize it because they think they have the final truth. <laughs> but um, that process theology isn't just about how our theologies are in process, but how everything that is actual is a process of becoming. So you, this moment, are not a thing. Uh, there's no... There's no fixed, changeless essence of you. Uh, we're each actually more like a flow. 
more like a current, in fact, a whole complex community of community of flows of becoming. There are billions and billions of <laughs> organisms that make us up in the complex community that we are. Uh, and we're taking in all the, <laughs> all the oxygen and the vibrations. So process thought, uh, more than most any theology, was very shaped by the interchange with uh, natural science, and so it's very interested in the material universe in a completely non-reductionist way, uh, and very deeply in dialogue with science for 50 years. Uh, and... And that was for Whitehead, with, that's why he became a philosopher, because he saw what Einstein, but especially then quantum physics, meant. That it ha everything had to be rethought, that the universe is much more radically uncertain, indeterminate, and relational, interrelative, inter than had been understood in the West. So process theology just really focuses on that becomingness of of everything that, is, that we would call a creature or an individual. So each, each of us, but each cell of our bodies and each molecule and each atom is a becoming creature, each electron. And now we've learned from quantum physics. In fact, each electron responds. It doesn't have free will, but it's unpredictable in its, in its actual response to our measuring it. Crazy stuff. That's why Einstein, you know, tried to make it go away. So is non-process everything before Einstein? All of well, to different degrees. Process theology is also very relational because it's looking at a relational universe in process, and so it's also relational with all pre previous theologies and philosophies, and finds a lot of antecedents. But it, it, it's it's pretty deeply critical about the habit of thought that. Uh, developed in classical theology uh, from classical Greek philosophy of seeing um, seeing the world as made of, of of substances that are separate from each other. A substance can't take part in another substance. Pure forms. Mm -hmm. Pure forms. Pure forms that are that that are, are the forms are like cookie cutters for the material things of the world. And they cut out you know all these separate beings, so we relate just from the outside in this philosophy that then became the common sense that Christianity took in. So you don't read much in, early Christi in, uh, in the early development of Christian theology, the medieval development, about like, an image as important as the, the, the Pauline body of Christ, in which we're not just members of Christ, like a church, but we're members one of, one of another in Romans. That's the insight that kind of got... Uh, repressed how much we participate in one another, not just humans, but as creatures. And then God. God is also not a changeless essence for process theology. And that's a huge argument that it launched in the world. Uh, that God also is a profoundly relational being. That's why God could be nicknamed love. Uh, and and that relationality means that God actually is affected. Compassion, moved with, moved by. God is affected. And therefore, yes, that means God is a little changed. That's what it means to be affected. That's why in classical theology, like with Anselm a thousand years ago, it's made very clear that 
I mean, they knew there was a problem here. They knew in Scripture it looked like God was very responsive, even emotional, uh, and being affected. Um, and so they, there's this dialogue that Anselm stages, you know. So since we know that God is 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 eternal and unchanging, uh, how can God? How can He also be uh, compassionate? Um, the answer, after much dialogue, is that God appears to us to be compassionate, because that's good for us, uh, but is not in himself, right? In and himself, that was Anselm, he is changeless. Right? That was yeah. yeah, so that got really crystal clear a thousand years ago. And that's common sense for Christians, though. God is un unchanging and eternal. We don't affect God. There's this fear that that would make God completely arbitrary or something. So process theology has a, has a highly developed vision, and my own the mystery is, is part of it and develops it in its own way, uh, of, of, a, of a God who, who is luring us, luring all creation, all creatures at every level to become, but there's an, indeter there, there's an element of self-determination at every level, freedom at every level that God doesn't close out or control. That's not how things are set up. That God calls it all forth, but God feels, feels with, has compassion for all that becomes. But in process theology, it means that's everything becomes and it becomes as it becomes a part of God. Everything is in God. That's why process theology sometimes is called panentheism as opposed to classical theism with its separate God, uh, and as opposed to pantheism where God and the world are one. With panentheism, it's like, like the Pauline, all in all. Do you see the concept, the Trinitarian concept of God as strictly uh, supportive in the process ideas, or uh, from a relational standpoint? Not strictly, but... but, um, but Rather beautifully, depending on how you go with your Trinitarian theology. And this is where, actually, um, I'm proud to say that I helped Jürgen Moltmann figure out something about the relationality of the Trinity because he got exposed because of his wife to my relational ontology early on. It was early on for me, not so early for him. And we talked about that later. I only got a footnote. But... There's something, <laughs> but there's something about about thinking. But for him, I mean, he was wanting to think of the interdependence of the persons. But there's not a lot of available Western philosophy. So, he, and he wasn't about to become a process philosopher or theologian for crying out loud. But he got he got a clue there, of thinking of, and that was where my feminism just cohered so deeply and early with my process theology. That sense of a robust sense of relationality that isn't just, you know, men are strong and separate individuals and women are just so relational, but something much more, <laughs> you know, much, much more vigorous. But yes, the, the, it's like that's as far as Christian theology got for a long time was to think through the internal relations of the imminent trinity and they really are internally related to one another, not separate, but distinct. But that logic of not separate, but distinct, not divided, but different, 
Tertullian got that right, uh, that, it, that didn't, like, break into an understanding of, of the creation. It was, like, trapped in God. But it's true of all of us that we are different, but not ontologically divided. We are distinct, wildly so, but we aren't ontologically separate, no matter how different you are from me. If I am at all in relation to you, consciously or unconsciously, you're a little bit a part of me. Under my skin, for good or for ill or for neutral. The world is, is in each of us, each moment. All of it in a certain strangely uh, integral way. But what's up close is what we feel much more definingly. So yeah, I think there's a lot more actually that could be done connecting the Trinitarian persons to process thought. Process thought didn't want to do that very systematically. I mean, Cobb felt like it, it, it just turns into an intellectual puzzle about the one in three and the three in one, and he thought it, it just lost track of what, like, Jesus cared about <laughs> or any of the prophets. So, um, you know, where, and of course there's no trinity as such in the Bible. There are good hints, you know, but you have to put them together. Should we open it up now? I think we should. I mean, of course, I could just go on endlessly lecturing about how to deconstruct divine omnipotence and reconstruct a, a meaningful sense of power, but I, you know, or crazy, but I'd really love to just get your thoughts and questions. I'm not a theologian, but where does you know, ex nihilo, creation ex nihilo, where does it come from? Who, who came up with it and why? Irenaeus seems to be the one who, in, that's in the third century, yeah. late third, early fourth, who seems to really clinch the deal. And it's very interesting to read the text in which he does it. It's his major tome. It's Adversus Heresius, you know, the against the heresies. Um, and fighting heresies wasn't a brutal thing at that point. Irenaeus was not part of the, an empire, right? He, Christians were still the persecuted, not the persecutors. So, but there were there were strong debates. And uh, and what he was pushing back against in in Gnosticism was a sense uh, that of, a, of a kind of, of, he named it as a female body goddess, uh, you know, who's uh, like, a, like, like God is like this female body uh, that, uh, that is intimately mixed into matter and nothing ever really uh, begins or ends. So <laughs> that image is in there, so that hooked my attention. But the, the more rigorous logic of, of it was, of course, that if, if, God, if God is the all-powerful creator, uh, then God creates everything from nothing, because how could anything come to be uh, if it weren't first created? You know, so there's, there's good, good logic there. And... It was an argument against against actually other classical forms that that had an understanding of a kind of of eternity of the world, um, and 
it is biblical to have a radical beginning of our world and, and some possible ending, though, as I say, it's not the end of the world, but in the Bible. Uh, but there, there is a dramatic beginning in the creation, and there are various dramatic endings and closures, eschatologically speaking. So what I needed to do was uh, try to interpret those, uh, those biblical priorities in a way that's more faithful to the Bible, which doesn't have the claim of an absolute beginning. It's, it's, it's you know, the Spirit of God is like, mm, hovering there. That's God. The Spirit of God is God in an imminence, feeling the sea, you know, feeling the flow, sensing the potentiality, isn't it? And the darkness upon the face of the deep is like some... Uh, just absolute cosmic depth of potentiality, um, and the earth tohu vabohu isn't the earth, but some kind. Maybe it's the energy that will turn into matter, uh, at, such as what we have on the earth. But you go from there to the, the days of the creation, where God calls. So it's coming forth not from nothing, but from that potentiality. And then it's interesting to get into a theory of the multiverse these days, right? Where there, there are a lot of different theories of multiverse. But where we can't even, even pretend to be scientifically astute, I think, now and say, this is the only possible universe. So it's not just that the world was much bigger than folk thought back then. It's that there, there might be multiple big bangs and, and crunches and... New Big Bangs, right? Well, so, simplistic question. Good, good. <laughs> <laughs> Whence cometh the multiple possibilities, potentialities, this thing that God is feeling or whatever, and is there a distinction between God and the potentialities as he draws them out of them? I mean, you've got the same old problem. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Um, the... The process here that, that drew me in that I keep trying to make sense of is that God has an eternal vision of, of all possibilities as possibilities. Uh, and, you know, this coming a little bit through Whitehead, who was one of the great mathematicians of the early 20th century, and numbers are a very strong example of that. They, they aren't things, but they are possible possibilities to get, you know, one, one bottle, one book, the number one is a possibility that gets embodied in all kinds of ways. But that uh, numbers, colors, scenes, emotion, what, an infinite palette of possibilities is something that one could understand to be the divine mind, uh, but that that's not enough for God, that God wants embodiment, God wants actualization and relation. But then the view here is that that probably saying God always wanted and always got in different forms. Uh, and what we mean, of course, by time is, is limited and tricky, isn't it, as opposed to these eternal possibilities uh, in God. So it's 
it's true that you, ha you, you can't get away from some question of, of origins, but you can say that we simply don't know what precedes our, at least right now, we don't know, but we have some interesting clues. Uh, we already know that we're just so vastly, incomprehensibly older as a universe than any biblical thinker could begin to imagine. You know, just the earth at its billions of years, I mean, crazy. Um, so the scales are already mysterious beyond comprehension just for this universe. Um, so there's, there's such huge scales that, you know, there's a way that time shades into eternity at that level. But, but, so but the possibility, it's just God would have, God, I loved this when I first got into Whitehead and I was in my, you know, mid-twenties, that God is the, the eros of the universe, that kind of desire, that God is this desire for more richness of relation, for, but not just more niceness and goodness and morals, but for more intensity and more complexity, hence the evolutionary richness. But God's not micromanaging it. It's not a creationist view. It's a much huger universe. God's <laughs> casting bread on the waters. God's offering a possibility to everything at every moment. Yes. yes. Right on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like the way, um, it, it's so empowering. And I guess the question please, I've been please. sipping on, uh, it's, it, it goes into what you were, in creating this conversation, you, talk, you touched upon politics of our time, right? Mm -hmm. What's going on in D.C. And right. I feel like the fact that you even speak to the mystery of the divine, of God, I think that's so, yeah, I, I'm with it. Mm -hmm. I'm right on. And it's like, in the way, in the times that we live in, where absolutism drives the market, right? This idea of how we've commercialized God, of creationism is this, and we've just streamlined it into the way that we conceptualize our educational experiences. It, it infiltrates every facet of our lives. How do we, you know, you, from your experience, how do we get people to buy in to the mystery? So that, <laughs> hey, this is actually oh, quite commodifiable. Like, there's so much innovation to be yeah. burnt from experiencing God in a way that's mysterious. Like, how do we, how do we, like, Get everybody on can board. I, can I compound that a little, right? Because yeah. it, it is that divine um, eros with the agape that mm -hmm. seems to me could be that bridge to gap. Written in 2008, kind of, it's speaking to today, just kind of a little bit crazy for me. Like prophetic, in a prophetic, you prophesied this kind of way. Like at a time when we're looking at North and South Korea in talks like we've never seen before. In our country that's going to need to be in talks no matter where we go from here. Um, how, how do those interplay? How do we get those to be in a, yeah, in a, like the Eros and the Agape to come together to bridge those huge gaps that are, woo, steamlining down our way. We need to bridge that. Well, thank you for these beautiful thoughts, uh, just thinking, <laughs> thinking forward. Um, you, you actually read the book, didn't you? Well, it looks like you read the Eros chapter in the Agape. I was, I connect. What I do is connect Eros to the sense of the divine lure in process theology, the lure of possibility. I call the Eros, and then 
the agape is the compassion that takes in whatever happens. Uh, and what I didn't say, which is pushing harder against a certain orthodoxy, is that by taking that in, God is also in becoming. Through all of the experiences of the universe that God takes in all together and somehow integrates in God's self, God is having an amazing, full, universal, bodily experience. Ecstatic. Uh, and, and yet with all the tragedy in there, too. Uh, perhaps in the way, she, you know, we say we can in, enjoy a good performance of Shakespeare's Hamlet, you know, that, that was, it's a different, that's a whole thing. How do we imagine the tragedy in God uh, as something <coughs> deeply compassionate and somehow then tilting so that there's a better possibility that comes forward? So, the, I, I think that people have some reverb with wanting a God who's really compassion and really in relation. I don't think that's a hard sell for folk in the Abrahamic tradition. Uh, it's a harder sell if we say that God is therefore becoming in the process, so one waits a little bit to get to that. Um, but any of these claims that I'm making um, and that I work with process theology making, I also, also, also always want to say remain uh, uncertain, yeah, the mystery. And this is where I tap into another tradition that's not so much process theology. Um, it's the mystical tradition in Christianity. It's not just in Christianity. Uh, I wrote a book called The Cloud of the Impossible. Um, I think that came out in, what, 2015, this millennium, um, <laughs> that really goes deep into that. That not just that yes, you know the word apophatic. All right, the apophatic tradition, the tradition of negative theology, the tradition that starts with Gregory of Nyssa, back around the time of Irenaeus, and and gets really explicit with uh, Dionysius the Areopagite in the seventh century, the Syrian monk, that realizing that anything we say about God, we must also unsay. We must realize that our best language is finite human language. And of course we must say that God is love, that God is just, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, that God is spirit, that God is one. Pseudo-Dionysius takes us through all that, and he says then to go higher, closer to God, it's a hierarchy for him, uh, but to go closer to God, we have to unsay and say... God is not Father, God is not Son, God is not good in our sense. God is not God, almost like in quote marks. It's wild stuff. And I just fell in love with that tradition that, had, that takes very many different forms through Christian history, and it's really pretty badly lost in most Protestantism, which became very rationalistic or fundamentalist. Um, or fideist. Um, so, the mis but I think people have a sense that the divine is a mystery and they need it addressed or else they just think it's their own failure and God just doesn't choose to appear to them and talk to them and make himself knowable. Um, so to tell them that no, it, it, she's really there, but all of our metaphors about her, him, it are 
our metaphors, some of them very revealed and revealing. It's not your failing. And people have that sense of mystery. And I think that humility, yes, has everything to do with then the politics that moves moves close. Can I pick up on that theme? To Christianity. Please. What's at stake in that, in that movement or that shift from certainty to uncertainty or from substance to process, to put it very simply, in political terms? What's at stake? Do you have a sense of what it is? I think it's everything, mm-hmm. in a sense, but I, I, I think I'm it asking is. you. Okay. <laughs> 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 Just, um, I just... You know, given I'm talking about mystery and uncertainty, I'm going to have to. Well, and maybe there are particular instantiations or like vignettes that, or contemporary moments that you could point to where that sort of thing, that sort of difference makes a difference. Where the difference of the mystery makes a difference. Yes. Uh, Yeah. Um, um, Right. Right. So I think it's 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 just not a coincidence that Martin Luther King was a disciple of Gandhi and, and his movement, um, as well as, as connected to a very interesting tradition uh, in the United States and connected to Gandhi through them, and that's Quakers. So the reason I mentioned that is these are deeply meditative traditions. The Quakers were a tradition, almost a purely apophatic tradition. They don't even do books of theology for the most part, so they don't they don't use the language of apophasis even, because they're rigorously into the practice of, of silence, so that there's a possibility of, of intuition coming through from, from the divine. And they were, <laughs> they were getting into, they were being thrown into jails left and right as they, in their first generations in the uh, 17th century partly for letting women preach. Women would stand up and preach on the corners. That was illegal. Um, A lot of Quaker women were in jail, uh, and a lot of Quaker men for not doffing their hats before the lords. Well, anyway, you know the Quaker tradition of of nonviolent resistance. Uh, Deeply connected to a practice that I would call very much uh, the mystery, the apophatic silence. And... Oh, Hinduism has its own versions thereof, and Gandhi connected his Hindu mysticism to his gospel ethics. And it was the Quakers who began to bring uh, African-American leaders over uh, to India, you know, to work with uh, Gandhi and, and his movement uh, already in the early uh, 60s. So that's just one, you know, so one example that there's a, you have here for, very, you mean Martin Luther King could be extremely cataphatic. That's the opposite of apophatic. Cataphatic is to assert in language. Apophatic is to unsay the language. He could totally preach in a Baptist style, uh, but there's this deep undergirding of a mystical spirituality of, of, of quiet and of silence that allows then, I think, a a kind of political discernment that in fact was more successful than almost any radical and nonviolent movement in history and more successful than a lot of the violent ones as well. Uh, And one would have to say that about Gandhi. Uh, It's not just, you know, 
going silent, like going passive. Oh no. Uh, it's a tricky kind of activism because it doesn't give your opponents a really good excuse to shoot you because you're not shooting at them. Uh, so, under some circumstances. So, that's just a, a cluster, cluster there. there. We got a question from our online community. What would you say about the relationship between sovereignty, power, and process on politics? Is the ultimate principle or principles one or many, or does this even matter? The book I am just doing the copy editing of that will be published um, in the fall is called Political Theology of the Earth. And the subtitle is Our Planetary Emergency and the Struggle for a New Public. Uh, and it's very much an engagement of, of someone called Carl Schmidt from whom the whole discussion around political theology emerged. I don't want to get into all of that, but it's all about the problem of sovereignty. And sovereignty for Carl Schmidt is what politics is all about. And why we read Carl Schmidt is because he realized that, that all modern political concepts are secularized theology. That's very interesting for those of us who are theologically active in a secular world. That what has been secularized is theological. And sovereignty is this big example. The sovereignty of the omnipotent Lord becomes the sovereignty of the omnipotent uh, law-giving ruler, and he approved of that, that, if, that a true ruler uh, is decisive. Sovereign is he who decides in the exception, says Carl Schmidt. Um, and that is how sovereign works, state of emergency. And the sovereign is the one who knows when he can declare, he, he, a state of emergency. Uh, and the sovereign is the one who doesn't abide by the rules. Sound familiar? And that has a, a charismatic power of its own sort. Now with Carl Schmidt, who was one of the most brilliant thinkers of Germany in the period between the wars, uh, that's, I mean, Walter Benjamin, well, Benjamin Talbes, a lot of Jews have said that. Uh, he became a Nazi. He became a Nazi. And you can see how that notion of sovereignty goes in that direction. So I think that there are helpful uses of sovereignty in terms of protecting uh, the, the, the national rights of, of states of the third world. And I respect very much the food sovereignty movement. I'm not about just getting rid of the term sovereignty. But I am certainly about desanctifying it. So I don't... I don't go with the strong... I don't, I don't find helpful anymore the metaphors of divine sovereignty, which are all about rule and domination uh, and top-down power. And I want to work gently, lovingly, and critically with those aspects of, of the, the biblical heritage that got caught up in forms of oppressive power. So we can, I think, be thinking together alternatives, uh, alternatives to sovereign power that would be much more radically and socially democratic.